Good morning, everyone. As you know, we are in a teaching series, a sermon series, that has been talking about prayer. Our church is in the midst of 21 days of fasting and prayer, and many of us, and some of us for the very first time, have been participating in that, and it's where we kind of look at our physical bodies and recognize that through fasting we position and, or should I say reposition our priorities before God. And so we're going to be having a special kind of prayer and worship time over at City Church Central on the 27th this coming Saturday night. And we're going to be spending some time. Uh, the fast actually ends next Sunday, but that last night we're going to gather together for worship and prayer. And if you have never been with us for one of those times, I encourage you to be there with us. This morning, I'm going to be talking about worship and prayer. My sermon is more or less going to focus on worship. But you know, maybe you don't, but many of us know that biblically speaking, worship and prayer oftentimes go together. Now, here's the caveat for this sermon at the very outset. This message is going to be very different than most that I preach. But as I've been praying through and looking through worship this week and the idea of worship and prayer, I felt really led towards a couple of things about worship that I want to highlight so that it might help you and give you a biblical understanding of what worship is and maybe even leverage you free to a new sense of what worship could be in your life. At the very beginning, I want to say this. City Church is based on three pillars. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church. Biblically-based means that we believe the Bible uploads to us the reality of what it looks like to be in relationship with God. Relationally driven means that the Bible teaches us that relationship is the most important thing in life. My relationship with God and my relationships with people. And then the third thing is we are a spirit-led church. And what that essentially means is that we've experienced and we believe that God has given us the Holy Spirit to live out that biblically-based reality that we, le we learn, and the Spirit has been given to us to help us in the midst of the relationships of our life. And so as a biblically-based, relationally-driven, Spirit-led church, I want us to look together at the idea of worship. And again, I want to give you fair warning, this will not be like any other worship sermon most likely you have heard. Because here's where I want to begin. I want to begin with this thought. We live in a broken world. It's not the best place to start when you talk about worship. But how many of us sitting here know that that's absolutely true? We live in a broken world. I was thinking about that this week in that Monday, as you know, was the celebration of the life of Martin Luther King. As I was thinking about living and worshiping, it struck me about how broken this world is. Our culture is the most technologically advanced culture ever. 
We're in a place now with pharmaceuticals for almost, almost everything. We have some medicine you can take. And we've made all of these huge leaps and advancements. And yet, if you are like me, and I'm going to kind of share from my heart this morning, is that even with all of those things, the brokenness seems to be more and more visible than ever. And as I thought about MLK Day, I thought about July 8th here in Charlottesville this year. I thought about August 12th here in Charlottesville. And how much time and energy those events took as a lead pastor here in Charlottesville, as I work with the clergy collective, and you just recognize that this world is so broken. Now, I also want to share this, is that my good friend Alvin Edwards, who pastors Mount Zion Church, this evening he's going to have a community-wide King Day celebration, and I'll be taking part in that with him over at his church. That's at 5 o'clock. If uh, you've got something better to do, that's fine, but if you would like to be there, 5 o'clock at Mount Zion, and we're going to be gathering together to celebrate the life of Martin Luther King. Now, with that, though, it dawned on me how broken this world is. How many of us could have ever imagined the city of Charlottesville would have the experiences that we had this past summer? None of us. And yet it's in the midst of a world like that that God calls us to be people who worship. Here's the, another thought as I think through that idea of we live in a broken world, and it's this. Compared to this world, the kingdom of God is all upside down. I'm going to expand and expound on that a little bit as we move into this sermon but I want there to be these guiding thoughts for us as we look at worship. Again, we live in a broken world, and compared to this world, the kingdom of God is all upside down. By the way, if you don't think that this world is broken, notice that the heat is broken in this room. I mean, you don't even have to go anywhere and you're convinced that the world is broken. You know, interestingly enough, when I share my faith with people around our community and I end up meeting with different business folks and talking about faith, I've never had a person yet when I start talking about faith and I'll say something like, do you think the world's broken? Anyone has ever said to me, no. 100% in agreement. The world's broken. But where we may differ is what it looks like to fix it and where you go to fix it. And here's another thing that I've said to these friends of mine that I meet with sometimes one-on-one -on -one or in a small group and I begin to talk to them about faith and what it looks like to follow Jesus and we talk about how the world is broken. The next thing is, are you broken? If you don't think you're broken, ask the person sitting next to you, am I broken? If you're married, <laughs> the issue is, it's not that we're broken, but here's my question. Where do you go with your junk if you know you're broken? That becomes the question. I know where I go with mine. But I've sat with people and sharing faith with them, and when I ask them the question, where do you go with their junk, there's no answer.
In Christ there is. There's not just an answer for it. There's hope. There's power for change. Christ can make all things new. And so when we look at the idea of worship, that's kind of the launching pad that this sermon is taking off from. The idea that we live in a broken world and the idea that compared to this world, the kingdom of God is all upside down. What do I mean by this? Well, let's look at a scripture very quickly. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 9, God admits that his kingdom is not like that of the world. God puts it this way through the prophet Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares God. When we begin to talk about worship, we understand that this world is broken. We understand the idea that compared to the world, the kingdom of God following Christ just looks so upside down compared to the world. And God says in the Older Testament, my thoughts, not yours. My ways, not yours. And when I was looking at worship and thinking about, well, how will we move through this, I came across this incredible story in the Older Testament. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, beginning in verse 2. It's page 358 if you want to utilize the Bibles that we provide. But I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of this Older Testament story and about worship and how God's ways are not ours. It's an incredible story. It deals with an individual by the name of Jehoshaphat. Can we say that together? Ready? Jehoshaphat. We have many pregnant women here, and my guess is they will not choose that for the name of their son. But Jehoshaphat is this Old Testament king. He's leading the Israelite people, and here's what ends up happening. And what ends up happening is that he's there, he's being the king, he's doing kingly things like kings do, and all of a sudden in chapter 20 of verse 2, it tells us that some of the people told King Jehoshaphat, here's what they said, they said, there's a vast army coming against you from Eden, Edom, and they're from the other side of the Dead Sea. In other words, they're really, really close. The warning comes very late. And it says, Alarm Jehoshaphat resolved to do something. And here's what it says. It says, Alarm Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah, all of Israel. And it says, The people came together to seek help from the Lord, and indeed they came from every town in Judah to seek God. So picture this. You got this Old Testament king, some runner shows up really late actually and says the enemy's right over there and it's a massive army and the king Jehoshaphat goes, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to call a season of fasting and prayer. God's ways are not the ways of the world. They're not. And can you imagine as a king, any other king would say, look, here's what I'd do, Jehoshaphat, I'd get my weapons ready. Man, I'd make sure that the troops are doing their push-ups. Whatever it looks like to get ready for battle, Jehoshaphat, that's what I would do. But God's thoughts aren't the thoughts of the world. 
And what you discover is Jehoshaphat calls all of his people to a season of fasting and prayer. And can you imagine the wrong thing to do when you're going into battle is to fast. You want to eat. Get your energy up. It's not what they do. And then we can pick up our reading in 2 Chronicles 20, 21 through 22. As Jehoshaphat gets his army ready for battle, here's what the scripture tells us. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise Him for the splendor of His holiness as they went, as they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for His love endures forever. And as they began to sing in praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. And what Scripture tells us, if you were to read on, it's even more incredible than that, is that when this army, the Israelite army, the, Israel, the, the, the army from Judah, as they go up onto a plateau where the army was, they look, and everyone's dead. And they didn't do anything. What ended up happening was the armies that were going to fight against Israel ended up fighting against itself, each other and killed everyone. And so Judah just kind of comes up over the rim, and there's the victory. It's an incredible thought. And then Scripture says this to us. It says, there was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley, and they praised the Lord. Do you think they worshipped? I think they did. But I want you to notice something that is so counterintuitive to the world in which we live. Jehoshaphat gets his army together, and he knows the enemy's coming, and who does he put out front? Worshippers. Now, here's what I think we ought to do. If we ever did go into war, I think we should take Rebecca and put her out front. Along with the worship team, say, go get them, guys, and have them up there saying, like, great is the Lord, great is His holiness. I mean, it sounds so crazy, doesn't it? It's absolutely crazy. Now, I want you to picture these other armies that are looking down into the valley on Israel. What do you think they thought? You imagine the spies coming back to their generals, and the spy says, you'll never believe what's happening. They have a choir that's out front, and they're singing. And then the next thing that happens is, God begins to move. And when God moves, stuff happens, because God always inhabits the praises of His people, always. Now remember though, we worship in a world that's broken and the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of this world. And we find in the Older Testament that this battle takes place and the battle was won through worship. Now as we move towards the Newer Testament, there's another thought that struck me, and I had no idea how to make it flow in my sermon, but I'm going to do it anyway. And it's this. Satan tempts Jesus. Here's the text. Matthew chapter 4, 
verses 8 through 9. Here's what the Scripture tells us. It says, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. Here's what Satan says to Jesus. All this I'll give you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Wow. As I looked at the temptation of Jesus and I read what the enemy of our souls said to Jesus, I read it differently for the first time in my life. And here's what struck me. Satan would cash in everything he had just for worship. Wow. That is shocking. You know what that tells me? The value of worship. Satan would trade in everything just for Jesus to worship him. The value of worship. It would be similar to if I wanted to sell my house and someone pulled up in my front yard and they knocked on the front door and they said, hey, Pete, would you be interested in selling your house? I said, sure. How much? And they said, $15 million. We go, really? $15 million. Wait, let me know, pray. No, yep, take it. Done, right? $15 million. But I'm going to tell you what your thought would be. Your thought would begin to be this. What is in my house that's worth that much money? And I would look at the guy and I'd say, wait a minute, $15 million. You're serious. Yep, absolutely serious. What's in my house? There must be some type of value that I'm unaware of if this guy is willing to give me this much money for something I think isn't that valuable. Listen, that's how we are with worship when it comes to the enemy of our soul. It is. We have no clue the value of worship when it comes to the spiritual realm. No value. We don't understand it. We can't comprehend it. But when I read that, I determined in my soul, I'm going to worship differently. I'm going to worship God in such a way where I'm going to believe, listen, if Satan was willing to cash in the dominions of this world, just if Jesus would worship him, then worship has value, and I don't completely understand that. I don't completely understand it. But I can tell you this, I'm going to move towards it. I am. Because if the adversary of my soul wants it that badly, then to give it to Jesus must be an incredible, incredible thing. It must be. It must be. Now, what I know is, is it seems as though, and it is true, that the kingdom of God compared to this world just seems upside down. In the Older Testament, we read the passage from Isaiah where God admits His ways, not our ways. His thoughts, not our thoughts. But what's stunning is that idea becomes even more developed in the Newer Testament. We can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 and 27. Here's what Scripture says. The Apostle Paul writes, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
But God chose the foolish things of the world, that's where we live, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Isn't that shocking? Even in the Newer Testament, it's brought to us that how the kingdom of God works is totally upside down compared to how the world works. And then the Apostle Paul personalizes that in the book of 2 Corinthians. Here's what he says. But he said to me, meaning Jesus, Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on to write, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Honestly, that makes no sense. When I'm weak, then I'm strong, unless you remember what Jesus said to Paul. Paul, when you're weak, I'm going to make you perfect because you won't rely on your own strength, Paul. And there's going to come times, Paul, in your life where life will be so overwhelming that you won't know which way is up. And when you get like that, Paul, please trust me. I'm Jesus. I will be there. And when I'm there with you, my grace will be sufficient. And Paul looks at that and goes, the next time I'm weak, I'm going to be glad about it. Because when I'm weak, then God will do something and he will give me a strength that's not my own. Remember again, compared to this world, the kingdom of God is all upside down. Now what I want us to do is look at the Newer Testament and how the Newer Testament describes the world in which we live. Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. I'm going to read it out loud, but I'm going to get you to read the word either groan, groaning, or hope out loud. Are you ready? All right, let's go. It says, we know that the whole creation has been, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, they what we what? Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we were saved, but that is seen is no at all. Who? For what they already have, but if we... For what we do not have, we wait patiently for it. How many of you would agree with this assessment of the world? There's a whole lot of groaning. How many of you got up this morning and you groaned? How many of you are still groaning right now? It's cold in here. How dare they have it this cold in here? We're just reminding you it's, it's not heaven. That's why it's cold in here. But what you will notice is, is what an accurate description of this world. 
The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that this world is groaning, that it's not just us, but all of creation is groaning and longing for and looking for the fulfillment of how God intended it to be. This world is not the way God intended. It's broken. That was my first point, that the world in which we live is horribly broken. And because of that, the Apostle Paul acknowledges that and says, you are groaning, Paul says, I am groaning, and all of nature is groaning as well. But oftentimes, the answer of why we're groaning is different. Some of us believe the reason why we are groaning is because of Republicans. Others of us believe the reason why we're groaning is because of Democrats. All of us, for some reason at times, we look at this world and we try to figure it out or we say, here's why. Let me tell you, the Bible tells us why. It tells us that many centuries ago, Adam and Eve lived in paradise, that place that we all long for and our hearts groan for and we believe exists. And we long for that place while Adam and Eve lived there, but Adam and Eve fell into sin. And when they fell into sin, the Bible in the book of Genesis is clear that the wheels came off. The wheels came off nature. The wheels came off all of creation. And more importantly, and most importantly, the wheels came off relationship with God and relationships with people. Chaos and dysfunction entered into the relational world. And some of you are sitting here, and you know the groaning of that. You groan because some that you love are totally sideways with what's best from God. You groan because relationship that you've invested in is broken. It's stretched to its limit, and there's a groaning in your soul. In the midst of that groaning, though, the passage that we just read tells us that there's a choice that we're going to have to make as followers of Jesus. And it's this. Am I going to be a person who worships or am I going to be a person who groans? Because as I look at that passage of Scripture that I just read, it begins by saying, yes, we are all groaning. Yes, we groan. Yes, we live in a broken world. But all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul moves toward this amazing word, and it's the word hope. It's hope that even though we admit the world is broken, that nature groans and we groan, that in the midst of that, we can find hope. So the idea is this, worship is when hope rises above groaning. I believe the most powerful worship that goes up to God from this room, from your life, is not when you just got a promotion, you just got a raise, and everyone loves you, and you got your favorite birthday cake. That kind of worship's great. But you know the most potent worship there is, is when someone's life has gone sideways and they feel the brokenness of this world and they walk into this auditorium and they're groaning from the depths of their soul 
And when they walk in, they would agree with Paul that everywhere they look is groaning. Yet in the midst of our time together or in the midst of their private devotion, they look at this world, they recognize it's broken, but in the midst of that, they begin to find hope. And it starts as a tiny little ember. And then it begins to flourish because as we look at it and we focus on it, it begins to grow and that little amber begins to fan the flame. And as that hope begins to happen, what we discover is we're not, de- we're not denying reality at all. It's just that we believe God is bigger, He is stronger, He is greater, and there's hope in the midst of groaning. And that, I believe, is the greatest worship that will ever rise up out of any life in this room. I believe that. Now again, I admit it. We live in a broken world. I felt it this week. How many times I found myself singing that song, and I won't sing it for you because everyone would leave. But it's that song, my Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives. There's more in Him than just what's around me in this world. But I referenced earlier that we live in a broken world, that there's chaos and there's dysfunction. And that's why we are offering this course called Soul Care. Because when we live in this world, we're not immune to what happens here. At times, things have been done to us, or maybe we've done things to others. And as we sit here, the shame can grip us. Some of us sitting here have felt that idea of living in a broken world, and you know it's invaded you, that it's not something any longer that you can say is just out there, but the brokenness is now something you're a part of, and not only are you a part of, you've participated in it. If that's you, that's why we offer this course called Soul Care. We've got a ton of people that have already signed up for this course. It begins tomorrow night at 6.30 at City Church Central, or I'm going to be facilitating that course on Monday nights as well as on Wednesday nights. I know that there are enough people that need soul care that we need to offer it twice every week. But in the midst of that, it's a discipleship process and a time of prayer where we have seen tons of people set free from things they thought were just going to be normal. In fact, next week we're having what we call God Sunday or God Story Sunday. It's where people will be up front sharing with you what God's done in their life. And what's incredible is we have two couples who've literally been transformed through soul care. Their lives have been deeply touched. And so I want to encourage you that if you know the brokenness of this world has somehow found its way inside of you and now you've participated in that brokenness and you know your soul is not in the place that it should be, please consider being a part. Pick either Monday nights or Wednesday nights and then commit to it. And we've seen God do incredible, incredible things. Now, as I was thinking about worship and the idea of this broken world and the idea of hope that Christ can bring, there's a passage of Scripture that deeply struck me. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. 
And here's what Paul writes to you and to me. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. What Paul's trying to do to the church of Corinth, which by the way, was pressed There was that sense of culture. It was like Las Vegas and you've got this little church in Corinth that again mirrors the culture of Las Vegas and this church is beginning to grow in the midst of that type of culture and Paul begins to speak to them and in his pastoral authority he writes in Scripture that look, you may have momentary affliction but know this, that that momentary affliction is not lost on God. He is using it to prepare you for an eternal weight of glory that goes way beyond compared to what you're experiencing in the midst of your affliction. And then he says this, as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. What you cannot see in the scripture, because it doesn't come out in English, What you can't see is that the word affliction actually means to have a weight pressed on you to the point where you're crushed. It's what it literally means in the Greek, to squeeze, to crush, and to compress. Paul's talking about somebody who's walking with Jesus where they just feel like the world is literally crushing them. And then he turns and says, but in the midst of that, God is is preparing you or us for an eternal weight. He uses that idea of something that's heavy again. But he says it's the weight, the heaviness of God's glory. And what you don't know is the word glory in the original Hebrew literally means heaviness. That's what it means. It's what the ancient patriarchs experienced when they would go into the temple of God and the presence of God would fall on them. And as the glory of the Lord came down, it was like a weight that drove them to ground in humility before God. What Paul is saying is, please know that you may feel the heaviness, the pressing, the compressing of this world. That's an affliction. But please know in the midst of that, that there's even a greater heaviness. It's the weight of the heaviness of God's glory, of God's kabod, of God's heaviness. And that heaviness, when it comes to us in the midst of worship, can lift us out of any affliction that we have ever faced. And then Paul also says this, in order for this to work, We can't just stare at the stuff in this world, but we also have to be a people who begin to recognize the unseen world, that we begin to see not just what's in this physical world, but we'd see the spiritual world as well. I was thinking that part through, and I thought to myself, how crazy would it look to someone that came in and watched our worship. Let's say they were up here and they were from another planet and they came in and they watched people worship. You know, at first it might make sense to them. They'd say, well, there's a band up front. 
Everyone seems to be clapping. And after a little bit, a bunch of the people have their eyes closed. Then all of a sudden, some people are raising their hands. Maybe there's even people that are kneeling. Can you imagine how crazy that would look to someone from another world? But the idea is, so much of worship is unseen. It's that idea of in the midst of the pressures of life, in the midst of this world, that we gather together as a group of people and our focus is not just on this present world, but we also focus on a hope that is to come. When we think about hope, I want you to let the next several verses grab your soul. Because I know some of us lost our hope. Our hope has been sort of misplaced or our hope has begun to fizzle and dissipate. And so please just listen to these verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 says this, He, meaning God, has called us to be born again into a what? A living hope. Isn't that a great phrase? It's a hope that's alive. He's born, us again, born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. In other words, the hope that you put in Christ is guaranteed. No one can touch it. Death could not keep him. Death could not hold him. And any hope or any promise he's given you is eternal. It can't be touched. Next verse, Philippians 3.20 says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's another verse, Revelation 21.4. Man, I love this verse. Here's what Scripture tells us heaven will be like. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let me put it to you this way. The hope that I have in Jesus is absolutely secure. And I know that when I move towards eternity with Christ, there will no longer be any dysfunction. There will no longer be any broken-hearted people there will no longer be any souls that are infected by this world to the point where there's guilt and shame and heaviness and brokenness. So I can sit here this morning even in the midst of that and I can worship God with this hope as to what God has prepared for me which is guaranteed. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for He who has promised is faithful. And then last, Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in what? Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Here's what worship is. Worship is when I realize the kingdom of God is right side up, and the world is upside down. 
That's what worship is. It's when in the midst of the struggles of this life, I stand into God's presence and I worship Him. Would you stand with me as we close out our time? One of the first sermons I ever heard on worship was a sermon and the entire sermon was about the following. You're willing to cheer at a football game, but you're not willing to cheer for God. Anyone ever heard that analogy before? I've heard it. I don't like that analogy. Because I can see a football game. I can get excited about a football game. I was at the wrestling match this past couple of days ago with the wrestling team. I watched people airborne in the stands during a wrestling match. I don't think God wants us to be airborne. I don't think God wants us to cheer and go crazy like, no. God wants us to be a group of people that no matter what's happening, have found hope in God. And we would dare to believe that Satan's assessment of the value of worship is true. And if it is true, we're going to worship God no matter what is happening in my life because I have a hope that's eternally secure in Jesus. And my light and momentary troubles pale in comparison to the living hope that I now have in Jesus. Let's worship Him together.